Um, now, talking about the first world war in the Middle East in 30 minutes was a bit challenging. So I have left aside uh, almost everything purely military to focus on four different uh, points. Uh, the Hussein MacMahon correspondence, the Sykes-Picot Agreement, the Great Arab Revolt, and the Balfour Declaration. It means that, very sadly, I have also left Mesopotamia aside. So the 1856 Treaty of Paris and the 1878 Treaty of Berlin had guaranteed the territorial integrity of the Ottoman Empire, but these guarantees seemed somewhat somewhat empty, while an alliance with uh, Germany provided the empire with an opportunity to, to fight against Russia, who was the hereditary enemy, and to free itself from the economic control of France and Britain. So the Ottoman Empire joined the, the Central Powers on November the 2nd, 1914, uh, by signing an alliance with Germany, this formed the Triple Alliance. Um, and formally entered the war on October the 28th by bombing Black Sea ports. Russia declared war on the Ottoman Empire on uh, November the 2nd, followed two, day, uh, two days later by France and Britain. Yet I've said that uh, the Ottoman Empire joined the Central Powers on uh, November the 2nd, but of course it was August the 2nd, sorry. The Sultan, the, the Ottoman Sultan, called a called for a jihad, a holy war, against uh, the Allied powers as well. And all along the war, Britain, and France as well, but Britain in particular, displayed great diplomacy, which eventually led to the partitioning of the, of the empire. So just like the Germans thought that stirring the revolt in Egypt would help keep the, the British occupied and away from the Suez Canal <coughs> zone, London thought that a an Arab revolt in the Hejaz. Uh, the Hejaz is roughly um, Arabia. Uh, they thought that stirring a revolt here would, uh, uh, would, would be key to bringing the Ottoman Empire down. So from 1915, the High Commissioner in Egypt, Sir Henry MacMahon, and the Sharif of Mecca, Hussein bin Ali, started corresponding about the political status of Ottoman territories. This correspondence, which lasted from July 1915 to January 1916, was entirely secret and went through a very complicated network of, of uh, messengers uh, via the Sudan. The letters were deliberately kept vague and, and would, at the end of the war, uh, uh, trigger endless controversies about their meaning and what they were actually um, saying. So at the beginning, the correspondence contained more or less failed proposals from Britain and seemed to imply that Britain would agree to a caliphate on the Arab world. The Ottoman Empire, the, the Ottoman Sultan was also the, um, the caliph. So he was the, the head, uh, the spiritual head of, of, of the, uh, the Muslim world. So Britain seemed to agree um, to a caliphate on the Arab world under the leadership of Hussein and his Hashemite family. And then the Sharif... Uh, hinted at the possibility of independence for the Arab states within the frame of a single state, which would call on the help of Great Britain for its administration and economy. And, and he asked for the boundaries of this state to be fixed. England, he wrote, will acknowledge the independence of the Arab countries, bounded on the north by Mosina and Adana, up to the 37th degree of latitude, in which degree for Berejek, Orpha, Mardin, Midyat, Jezeret, Ibn Umar, Amadia up to the border of Persia, on the east by the borders of Persia up to the Gulf of Basra, on the south by the Indian Ocean, with the exception of the position of Aden, uh, to remain as it is, it was a British protectorate, 
um, on the west by the Red Sea, the Mediterranean Sea, up to Mersina. So roughly, this covered all the um, Arab provinces of the Ottoman Empire and parts of Anatolia. MacMahon replied by alluding to the possibility of a caliphate in Arabia, uh, mostly because the British and, and the French were painfully aware that it would be absolutely impossible to, to impose a Western Christian rule on the holy cities. So these are mostly uh, Medina and Mecca, and that the Hejaz, which whatever happened, would have to be left aside when time came to uh, cut out the Ottoman Empire. The Allies' defeat in Gallipoli prompted the British to make more specific promises in a, late, in a letter dated October the 24th, 1914, by which, so in this letter, they roughly they accepted most of Hussein's demands, except for the first point here when uh, MacMahon wrote that the two districts of Mersina and Alexandretta, portions of Syria lying to the west of the districts of Damascus, Homs, Hama and Aleppo, can't be said to be purely Arab and should be excluded from the limits demanded. Um, this actually uh, reflected the traditional interpretation of the British experts uh, <coughs> gathered in Cairo. Uh, these were an eclectic bunch of military officers, um, politicians, archaeologists and diplomats from, for whom the line Damascus, Homs, Hama, Aleppo was a clear boundary between Arabness and um, Levantism. And well, the closer, uh, the closer one got to the Syrian coast, they thought, um, uh, the more people uh, became Francophile Levantine Arab speakers as opposed to real Arabs. Uh, Palestine, for, for instance, couldn't be considered as purely Arab and, and was therefore implicitly not promised to Hussein, but very implicitly not promised. In November, Hussein agreed to drop his claims on Anatolia, but insisted that there was no difference between Christian and Muslim Arabs. So uh, Aleppo and Beirut were to be considered as purely Arab. And he also insisted on the Arabness of Mesopotamia and only accepted the principle of a temporary British uh, administration in exchange for financial compensation. In his following letter uh, in December, MacMahon took careful note of these observations and then pointed out that the issues of the Vilayets, the provinces of Beirut and, and Aleppo, mainly involved French interests and would therefore require careful consideration because at that point they didn't want to offend the French. Now, Hussein had a single, simple, very simple definition for Arabness. An Arab was an Arab because he was of Arab descent and his religion was totally um, irrelevant. And he went as far as claiming all the Arabic-speaking territories in Asia. So when the British said Arabia, meaning uh, Arabian Peninsula, Hussein understood Arabasia. He wanted the whole of the Ottoman Empire. Another ambiguity in these letters revolved around the notion of uh, independence. Hussein knew that to develop an Arab state, he would need um, European men and, and, and money. So to make his offer more attractive, he offered the British a kind of monopoly over this, uh, on this uh, European presence in Arab lands. But for him, it was a kind of technical cooperation. It was certainly not a, a question of political domination. The British, however, Arab independence meant separation from the Ottoman Empire and a British protectorate over, over the, new, um, the new great Arab state, a bit following the, the Egyptian model. Another reason uh, why the, the letters were quite ambiguous was that the correspondence was conducted in Arabic on both sides with a kind of effusive floweriness uh, in titles and honorifics and also the British translated from their English original text with varying degree of... Uh, of accuracy. 
these these are, are very semantic ambiguities, and there was also a more prosaic territorial one. For the British, if one territory couldn't be considered as purely Arab, it was Palestine. Palestine, well, the holy places meant that the Allied powers couldn't disregard its, its evolution. It was really important to them. And due to strong foreign presence, Palestine was rather considered as a Levantine territory, which happened uh, to be vital for the protection of the Suez Canal. Uh, so the Cairo group thought that Palestine should be attached to Egypt. The, the exclusion of Palestine from the future Arab state appeared in the correspondence, but in, in a very, very vague way, through expressions such as purely Arab or the interest of ally France uh, have to be considered. Hussein, on, on the other hand, was entirely convinced that the correspondence guaranteed the great Arab state, Palestine included, which would satisfy, satisfy both his personal ambition and the Arab claims for independence. Uh, in the meantime, London was engaged in other negotiations. Mark Sykes, MP for Hell Central and a member of the uh, De Bunsen Committee advising the Cabinet <coughs> on Middle Eastern Affairs, and French diplomat, uh, diplomat François-Georges Picot were instructed by Britain and France to negotiate the French and British zones of influence in the Middle East, drawing upon the Hussein Mahmoud correspondence. As early as December 1915, uh, Sykes declared he wanted to draw a line from the E in Acre to the last K in Kirkuk, uh, that, which would effectively divide the Ottoman Empire into two very distinct zones of, of influence. Uh, Mark Sykes, all the, well, it's really interesting and really fun to read the, um, the reports on the negotiations because Mark Sykes, Mark Sykes keeps <coughs> complaining about the French saying that the French were really hard to talk to, that the, the tiniest opposition, uh, the tiniest remark would bring souvenirs and, and reminiscences of, of Joan of Arc and Fashoda. I'm sure some of my colleagues here could tell you that it's still true. <laughs> despite, despite his uh, not liking the French much, uh, in May 1916, their work was signed off by French Secretary, uh, Secretary Edward Gray and the French ambassador in London, <coughs> Paul Combon, and then approved by Russia and Italy. So the Sykes-Picot agreement uh, divided the Middle East into five zones. The blue zone, um, covering Lebanon and Cilicia, was to be under direct French administration. Zone A, covering Syria, uh, Syria and the province of Mosul, uh, was to be under uh, Arab control, uh, but under French influence. Uh, the red zone was to be under direct British administration. Zone B was to be an Arab state, well, uh, Arab controlled, but under British influence. Uh, the brown zone, which looks slightly yellow, formed of, well, Palestine mostly, was to be placed under international administration with Britain controlling uh, the ports of Haifa and Acre. So it wasn't exactly the straight line from Acre to Kirkuk, uh, but it's, it's nearly there. This... <coughs> This was a very, very uh, restrictive interpretation of the Hussein MacMahon correspondence. Uh, the general consensus, I think, is that uh, the Sykes-Picot agreement competes with the Balfour Declaration for the uh, distinction of being the policy document that did most damage to goodwill towards Britain during, uh, during the war in the Middle East. Uh, the agreement did consider an Arab state, but it was very, very far from the independence that Hussein thought the correspondence was uh, recognising. After, after the Bolshevik Revolution, and the Russians informed the Ottomans of the existence of the agreement, uh, which was then made public, uh, and from then on it was severely criticised in Britain and abroad. 
Um, Lloyd George, for example, described it as a fatuous arrangement judged from, from any and every point of view. And as early as January 1916, actually, McDonough, uh, the head of British military intelligence, had declared when Sykes had told him about the agreement. I, conf- I must confess that it seems to me that we are rather in the position of the hunters who divided up the skin of the bear before they'd killed it. I personally cannot can't foresee the situation in which we may find ourselves at the end of the war, and I therefore think that any discussion at the present time of how we're going to cut up the Turkish Empire is chiefly of academic interest. Now, actually, actually the Sykes-Picot uh, agreement was rather superseded by Evans. On November the 7th, 1918, an Anglo declaration was published. Uh, it gave, so it gave the complete and definitive liberation of the peoples so long oppressed by the Turks as the Coast World War in the East, and then promised national governments and administrations based on initiative and free choice of indigenous populations. Oh, that's the that's the Arabic version of the declaration, which was uh, reproduced, uh, well, massively reproduced and, and distributed everywhere. In, in the Arab parts of the Ottoman Empire. Now, I've always found this declaration a bit strange because it was made after the war with the Ottoman Empire was finished, um, since the armistice had been signed on October the 30th. And unlike other commitments to the Arabs, it was definitely not necessary to win the war. And it certainly stirred up uh, nationalist aspirations, uh, what Gertrude Bell uh, called a great number of windy theories. And, of course, it was totally contrary to the Sykes-Picot Agreement. And I, I think there was a pervasive feeling in a, among British politicians that the agreement was far for too generous to France and that the French claims didn't need to be taken too seriously. In the end, Sykes-Picot was a thoroughly old-fashioned piece of power politics and largely designed, I think, to reassure the French as to uh, British uh, aspirations in an area that France regarded as hers. And... Uh, T. Lawrence described it, um, later described it in the following way. Each party making the terms considered only what it could take, or rather what would be most difficult for her neighbour to take or refuse her. And the document is not the constitution of a new Asia, but a confession, almost an advertisement, of the greed of the conquerors. No single close of it will stand the test of three years' practice, and it will only be happier than the German treaty in that it will not be revised, it will be forgotten. Obviously that never happened either. In June 1916, however, when Hussein formally rebelled uh, against the Ottomans, he didn't know about the Sykes-Picot Agreement. Now, we all know about the Arab revolt because of one man, T.E. Lawrence, that we usually uh, know as Lawrence of Arabia. When the the Arab revolt is mentioned, we we tend to think of Billam Robes and and Peter O'Toole as the person I think about. but admittedly, we're compared to, to the mud and barbed wire of, of the Western Front. It, the, the war in the desert looks almost romantic. Well, I'd say almost romantic because, because there's nothing romantic in riding a camel. I, and I, I seem to remember reading in the press, a, I think it was last January, February, that T. Lawrence actually hated camels. Now, I can't blame him. It's... I've crossed the Wadi Rum in Jordan on camelback from Petra to Aqaba and never, ever again. <laughs> Although its, it's importance seems to have been greatly exaggerated, uh, there is probably more to be said about the Arab revolt and probably less about Lawrence himself. Yesterday, yesterday night, I was talking to my former supervisor on the phone 
and he gave me the most, I think, the most accurate uh, description I've heard of T. Lawrence. He said, well, you know, Lawrence is an, was an undersized British intelligence officer of ambiguous sexuality who turned an obscure <coughs> uncertainty into a timeless work of art. <laughs> and I think there's a bit of truth in there. So I won't get into uh, too many military details, uh, first because it's not very interesting and then because uh, we'll run out of time. But globally, the Arab revolt began on June the 5th, 1916, when forces commanded by uh, Sharif Hussein's son, sons uh, Ali and Faisal attacked the Ottoman garrison at Medina. Now, this was a total failure. Um, they, had to, they had to break off their attacks. Uh, Sharif Hussein publicly proclaimed the revolt on June the 10th in Mecca, and his forces were slightly more successful, and they seized the city. Uh, meanwhile, uh, in the meantime, another of Hussein's sons, he had four sons. Uh, four legitimate sons. Uh, Emir Abdullah surrounded and besieged the town of Daif. So the British army also dispatched their, their own uh, military mission to liaise between the Arab leadership and the British High Command in Egypt, and this mission was, of course, assured by uh, T. Lawrence and his camel. The, the final phase of the revolt involved Arab participation in the final uh, British offensive in, of September, September, October 1918, which started in Palestine and quickly broke the Turkish front and began a generalised collapse and uh, route of the Turkish armies both west and east of the Jordan. Uh, the Arabs formed a, a, um, a very fast-moving right flank to this offensive and reached uh, Damascus on October the 1st. Now, Faisal and Lawrence were actually the first to enter Damascus. Now, much has been made of the, the Arab revolt and to Lawrence exploits in the Arabist, in the Arab or Arabist mythology, it's it's it marked the beginning of an Arab awakening. It uh, was it tied up a lot, a very large number of Turkish troops, and greatly assisted Alandi's um, success in Palestine. But in truth, Hussein's ambitions were probably more personal than truly Arab. And the revolt wasn't really an Arab uprising in a way, but it was obviously supported by the Hashemites, but not uh, widely by other Arabs. And this map was showing all, all the, red, uh, the red words of different Arab tribes. And so there were loads of them. So while the revolt was yeah, supported by the Hashemites, it wasn't that widely supported. Uh, only the battering of the Hedges actually took to the field in any numbers. It seems that, that the forces Hussein managed to gather never exceeded, at best, 15,000 men. Uh, and they didn't, achieve, they didn't achieve much either. Uh, they did take Jeddah and Mecca, but they didn't take Medina. And uh, they fought mainly for loot. The Arab Bureau reported in 1918 that it must be said that 90% of the sheriff's troops are nothing more than robbers. And Allenby's intelligence officer, Colonel, Colonel sorry, Minot Hagin, said it was safe to say that Lawrence's de desert campaign had not the slightest effect on the men theatre west of Jordan. So probably without the myth of Lawrence and the seven pillar of wisdom, uh, well, not much attention would have been paid to the Arab revolt. And it's uh, why I think there was some truth in my, supervisors, my former supervisor's description of Lawrence. The 1917 Balfour Declaration, or rather the reactions it triggered, it shows uh, how insecure and disunited the Arabs were. So in 1917, uh, Balfour sent Lord Rothschild, who represented the, the British Zionist Federation, a letter stating that 
His Majesty's Government view with favour the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavours to facilitate the achievement of this object. It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine or the rights and political status enjoys, enjoyed by Jews in any other country. So it's obviously caused consternation in the Arab world. And, and Sharif Hussein in particular asked Britain somewhat urgently what it exactly meant. So the David, commander David Hoggoth, who was the head of the Arab Bureau, was sent to Jeddah in January 1918 to deliver what is now known as the Hoggoth message. Uh, it was a letter from Sykes to Hussein giving... Uh, it stated that the Entente powers are determined that the Arab race shall be given full opportunity of once again forming a nation in the world. Um, this can only be achieved by the Arabs themselves uniting, and Great Britain and her allies will pursue policy with this ultimate unit, uh, unity in view. So I'm not quite sure whether this modified Macron Hussein uh, or Sykes Picot was self-help was the general idea, and, and uh, a policy seemed much more specific in um, regard to in relation to the Jewish aspirations. So Hussein, Hussein felt he had been. Uh, uh, horribly betrayed, and that Britain had promised Arab independence in Palestine, and then they thought that Hogarth was confirming the promise, but actually he wasn't, because he said, so far as Palestine is concerned, we're determined that no people shall be subject to another. So it was definitely not promising them a domination over Palestine. Other Arab leaders were more concerned than uh, Hussein, who seemed to be appeased enough uh, by Hogarth. The Sykes-Picot agreement caused real alarm in the Arab world. A memo was presented to the British, in, to British government in Cairo asking Britain to clarify its position. The Foreign Office replied in June 1918 with what is now known as the Declaration to the Seven. And it dealt with four categories of territories. The first two were territories independent before the war or liberated by the Arab themselves. So in these, the objective was complete and sovereign independence for, um, of the Arabs. Uh, the third category was territories liberated from the Ottoman Empire by the Allies, uh, Mesopotamia, uh, roughly, and um, Palestine, uh, in which case the future government of those territories should be based upon the principle of the consent of the governed. Uh, the fourth category was composed of those territories still under uh, Ottoman rule, mostly Syria and the, the, the province of Mosul, in which the oppressed peoples should obtain their freedom and independence, and Britain, uh, the declaration stated, would work towards this aim. So this declaration was hugely reassuring, and in essence, Syria, Palestine and Iraq, Britain would work for freedom and independence, and no regime would be imposed on the uh, which wouldn't be acceptable to the populations. To conclude very briefly, uh, for the Ottoman Empire, the end of the First World War came on uh, October the, the 31st. Uh, it was triggered by the almost simultaneous uh, collapse of the Macedonian and Palestinian fronts. While these two collapses made the Ottoman military position untenable, one could probably say that the real cause of the collapse was total exhaustion. Well, I know, and Brian said, that uh, the Allies suffered great losses, uh, great defeats at the hands of the Turks, mainly in, in Gallipoli and Kut, but, but the Ottoman Empire was essentially an agricultural state which has thrown itself head over heels in something which turned out to be an industrialised war. 
And, and the result is that while the, the empire proved able to put a large and fairly modern conscripted army into the field, it wasn't really in supporting it uh, adequately. So the armistice was signed aboard HMS Agamemnon. Uh, the subsequent partitioning of the Ottoman Empire gave birth to the Arab world almost, almost as we know it now. And it's why, uh, it's why the First World War has such, had such an impact on the Middle East. So it was a very brief, very broad overview. Thanks. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.